Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 248, Post-Election Judaism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we are here again for a conversation just between the two of us. We have done it a few times, two weeks in a row, not too often. But if you'll remember last week when we recorded, it was Monday. We didn't know what was going to be happening in the election on Tuesday. And actually, it is... uh, the following Tuesday when we're recording this now and we just barely know what happened in the election. But we're going to call it here, I think. Uh, And we feel like the AP called it, Fox News called it, everybody called it. So I think we can say that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won the election and uh, we have a new president and vice president-elect. So we're going to talk about what that has to do with Judaism, what that has to do with the subjects that we've been talking about all these years. When we launched Judaism Unbound just about four and a half years ago, it was just before the Trump era began, and we had no idea that it was coming. And so I feel like we started in a certain way, and then all of a sudden we were in the Trump era. And now for the first time in the history of this podcast, we are on the way out of the Trump era. And I think that there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there. Before we jump into that, we are excited to share that we are doing a Hanukkah fundraiser that's coming up, and it's going to be for the low cost of $36 or more, if you're inclined to give more. You can get a ticket to join us for any or all of the eight nights of Hanukkah. We are going to have a bunch of special guests. Think of some of the most popular guests on Judaism Unbound, and they're going to be there, and you'll have a chance to chat with them and talk a little bit about Hanukkah. And uh, we're really excited about it. We're going to do some Hanukkah rituals, new and old. And we think it's going to be really great. Yes, it's definitely going to be really great. We're really excited about this. We're reaching out to some fantastic potential guests. Some of them you might recognize from Judaism Unbound's past. Some of them you might not, but they're really great. And you'll enjoy this. Um, We're going to experiment. That's what we do with Judaism Unbound. And um, we're going to try out a bunch of stuff for this holiday, little compact rituals like Dan mentioned, and we're going to schmooze with each other. We're going to get to know each other better. Um, It should be a good time. We hope to see you there. So if you already feel like you're part of the Judaism Unbound community and you really want to feel that even more powerfully on an actual Jewish holiday, please come join us. We are doing it as a fundraiser just because a lot of people like to give their end of year fundraising in December and a lot of people think about Hanukkah and and the end of the year, the end of the tax year is a good time to give a donation. So we we hope that it's a, a price point that is uh, not too high and that everybody will be able to participate. Let us know if you're not and we'll work something out if you want to attend. But we really hope that people will uh, support us. If you've been listening to Judaism Unbound all these years, uh, we would be really, really grateful. And the way that you can find this and find out how to do it is to go to www.geltraiser.com, G-E-L-T. T-R-A-I-S-E-R dot com. And you can also just go to the Judaism Unbound homepage and there'll be a button there or the Jewish Live homepage and there'll be a button there. But it is our Hanukkah Gelt Razor. For those who don't know, Gelt is the Yiddish word for money. Uh, so it is the Hanukkah Gelt Razor that we're doing this year and we're really excited about it and we hope that you all will join us. By the way, you don't have to come every night. You can come when it's convenient for you and there'll be recordings so you'll be able to see the ones that you missed if you do miss them. All right, so Lex, let's talk election. Let's talk about the aftermath of the election, the meaning of the election for Judaism, the meaning for of Judaism for the election. Um, what are you thinking about? Oh my gosh, so many things. Um, two starting points maybe. Um, the first thing I'd say is I don't know that Judaism immediately automatically changed once this election was called. And I'm saying that not because I think you disagree with that, but because I think what needs to be said is this election, you know, from your perspective, from my perspective, is a really important prerequisite to doing a bunch of good things for our society. Like there are a bunch of ways that our society cannot improve and cannot be a justice-driven place under a Trump 
presidency. And my perspective is that this kind of administration under Biden and Harris is one where potentially we can do a lot of good work. What I what I want to say is like we haven't yet. We have to do the work of getting policies through of of pushing to ensure society really does improve under this more justice-driven kind of administration. So that's number one. The second thing is at the same time, Judaism has the potential to deeply change as a result of this, at least in terms of what what Judaism is being channeled to do in this country. So I think lots of Jewish institutions, especially the ones we're aligned with in the Jewish universe, the last four years have been a, a set of years of resistance, of making sure terrible things do not happen as terribly as they could. And we could look back at that and ask how well we did. I think in certain ways, the Jewish ecosystem stood up really well in the four years of Donald Trump's presidency. In other ways, I think we still have a ton of work to do. Um, By the way, what I've seen numbers-wise is that certain components of American Jews actually supported Trump more this time than last time, which I think should make all of us concerned and all of us look inward. But I'm bringing up basically attention, and you're probably hearing it in my voice, which is that on the one hand, everything has changed, and we have a fundamentally different society to work with and a fundamentally different set of potential goals that we can achieve together. And when I say together, I don't just mean Jews. I mean roughly progressives, justice-driven people. At the same time, nothing has changed yet. We really have to do that work. And I want us to be really careful not to get complacent and assume that we can sort of rest now. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about during this period is that so many of these, and and maybe all of the major times of transition in Jewish history have been in these kind of dark times for the world and often for the Jews separate from the world. But, you, you know, it's not, it's generally the case that we live in the world. I mean, you know, that there's so much talk, we've talked about this a million times on Judaism Unbound, there's so much talk about Jewish exceptionalism, you know, that somehow we should see ourselves as living in this bubble in which Judaism is what's happening. But that's never been the way that it's been, that it's always been that Judaism and the Jews are in, and are sort of, it's like riding on a wave. It's like, you know, you're, you're riding the rest of what's going on in society. And the question is, how do you react to it? Or how do you not react to it in the sense that you kind of maintain your stability, like if a wave is going over you, but you're like, you know, you have an anchor in the in the ocean floor, you know, then you kind of you bounce around, but you you stay where you are. You know, whatever metaphor you want to take, the, the idea that we have been living through and we continue to live through this incredibly destabilizing time in the history of Western democracy you know, I would say that that continues. I I think it's really clear from the election. I mean, I think a lot of us believed, maybe it was wishful thinking and maybe it was a polling error, right? But there was some sense that there was a repudiation of Donald Trump that was about to happen. And then, by the way, I, I think every, I think it would still be all the same. Like we would still be in this incredibly unstable time. And yet we would have believed in some way that that repudiation came and therefore maybe we would have let our guard down. So I go to Judaism to see where we have many warnings in our history about certain kinds of kings that we should be particularly afraid of. And so for me, it's the the concerning thing is not that Republicans got a lot of votes or Democrats got a lot of votes. It's that Donald Trump was not repudiated the way that that I would wish that a figure like that. I'll would be honest. Be. I was not optimistic that there would be a kind of repudiation that you're talking about. I was not optimistic that there would be like a massive electoral victory nationwide. That there would be like I don't know a 10 percent popular vote swing to Biden and Harris. Like I, I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, I, I think what that brings up for me, and this I'm going to bring back the Judaism piece too. Like I actually have a similar relationship to the concept of America, and I'm using concept intentionally, I have a similar relationship to the concept of America that I have to the concept of Judaism. And I think that I look around and I actually think for a lot of people, their approaches are different. For some people, so my approach to the concept of America is I actually 
see America as kind of a neutral thing. I, I'm not somebody who thinks America has been exceptional in history. I don't think America is like this beacon of freedom and equality and all these, in my view, platitudes that we apply to it. I think America in all sorts of ways measurably has caused a ton of harm to a ton of people, both in America and outside beyond America for a very, very long time. And I also think that America has done a really large number of very important good things. And so for me, I look at the concept of America and it's like, okay, it's potentially that this society I'm part of can potentially be great and potentially it could be really terrible. And so we have a lot of agency over what America is at that point. And so I'm, I actually don't spend a lot of time talking about like American values, like America stands for X. I don't think America stands for anything eternally. I think America stands for what we make it stand for. Um, and I think that we could make it stand for justice and equality and all of the values we want, or we could lose. And the people who say America, you know, is a Christian nation and it stands for whatever it stands for who disagree with me, they're actually not wrong descriptively. I would like them to be wrong in the future. So that's number one. And listeners, you're probably sensing where I'm going. Like, I also feel that way around Judaism. I don't talk that much around like Judaism stands for X. Judaism is a religion that believes X. Jewish values dictate that I do it. Like an Orthodox Jew who voted for Trump and who thinks Judaism dictates all sorts of approaches to marginalized groups that are appalling to me, they're not wrong descriptively, in my view. I would like them to be a very small minority of Jews, both American Jews and Jews globally, but like... Judaism is not like a defined value system that can only be utilized in one way. It is used in the ways that all of us use it. And so I think it's an important moment for us to think about what it is to have a relationship to something that is deep and a part of you. Because I actually am really like, it's not that I like sing the Reagan anthem, proud to be an American, God bless the USA. Like, I don't sing that all the time. But I like, I acknowledge being an American is who I am and shapes who how I think in so many ways. And I don't hate that about myself. I, I love Milwaukee, where I grew up. I love Rhode Island, where I live now. I even love Mississippi, where I lived for two years. Like, I love a lot of corners of this country. And my relationship to America isn't, wow, this thing is so great. I have to like defend those who criticize against those who criticize it. I am one of the ones who criticizes it. And similarly with Judaism, I think there's this weird thing where a lot of people with my orientation to America don't apply that to Judaism. They think, oh, America's a thing that I can have a complex relationship with. I can sort of have it be my identity, but I'm going to be out there in the protests for justice. With Judaism, I kind of want to defend it. I want to say like, it's got good values. It's not neutral. It's got really good values. And these are things that like, like, I kind of want us to back out and say, Judaism is what we make it. And that's not dissing it. That's actually empowering us to be the ones that create the Judaisms that will be driven towards justice and will be enriching for us and will do all the things we want them to. I think that what I see in America and Judaism is a past in which certain values that I believe in have been put out there, especially movingly and especially strongly. And so I want to reach back into those past expressions and pull them forward, which I think sort of fundamentally feels more powerful to me. And maybe on a certain level more authentic, which I understand is a problematic thing to say and even to believe. I don't know if it if it's right or if it's not right, but it feels like when you have a country or a religion or people, wisdom, tradition that has carried a certain set of ideals with it over a long period of time, then there's like some extra oomph to say, I want to really raise up those ideals 
now and like you say, going into the future, as opposed to if we were just like neutral, like we were just from New Jersey, you know, like I not to diss anybody from New Jersey, but like as far as I know, like New Jersey or, you know, Illinois, where I'm from or, you know, Rhode Island, I don't know, maybe a little different, but um, where you're from. But the but but I kind of feel like um, where mo- I live, where I live, not where I'm originally where from. You're, where you're, right. I'm, I live in Illinois. But like the point is, like, I, I think that like I don't I don't really think Illinois stands for something. You know, whereas I I do have this feeling like America is supposed to stand for something and like Judaism is supposed to stand for something. Now, I'm also not naive and and totally agree that all kinds of horrible things have been done in the name of America and the name of Judaism. And by the way, not wrongly so. I mean, they're wrong morally, but I mean, in other words, like I think the people who have done awful things in the name of America and the name of Judaism have also based what they've done in things that are truly American or truly Jewish. So I'm agreeing with you in that in that I think that when you look backwards, you can see both good and bad stuff in the toolbox. But to me, somehow there's there's more there's more I don't know, is it more value, more more ability, more likelihood of success, but maybe also more risk of failure when you're trying to do that versus if you're just taking something neutral like Illinois and just saying like, let's make Illinois stand for something. You know, it's like, it just doesn't feel, it feels to me like more, there's a more of a chance to do that with Judaism or with America than with Illinois or, you know, I know that you're gonna be upset about this, but if I would say the Packers, you know, like wh- what do the Packers mean? What do they stand for? This is a great conversation because I will tell you, so I grew up in Wisconsin. To Wisconsinites, Illinois stands for stuff. I'm not saying that kindly. I'm saying that (laughs) factually. I I just heard on TikTok a phrase that I grew up with and my wife and I were talking about it. I was like pop quizzing her about what this acronym stands for. There was a phrase used by this guy who does like stereotypical Wisconsin stuff where he referred to fibs. He referred to FIBs. We get to throw the explicit label on this episode now because that phrase stands for fucking Illinois bastards. It is a phrase used often to describe cars with Illinois license plates, which are perceived by Wisconsinites to drive much more rudely and much more erratically in Wisconsin than Wisconsin drivers do, who are presumed to be more courteous. All of this is like stereotypes and you obviously like can't generalize across societies. But like I say that because I, I would challenge what you said about Illinois standing for things, Wisconsin standing for things, the Packers standing for things. The Packers could be a whole interesting thing, but like we won't go there. Um, I think that all of these places have self-identified personalities and they have personalities assigned them by people outside of them. We have the ability to shape what those perceptions are and those perceptions change a ton over time. And with America, with Judaism, we look back at history in the way you described, and we choose specific things that we claim mark our identity and certain things that we claim don't. Lots of Jews who look at the Torah know that there's terrible things in the Torah. We look at the Torah, usually, or a lot of people, I shouldn't say we, but like many people look at the Torah and they say, ah, the essence of the Torah, Rebbe Akiva does this in the Talmud, the essence of the Torah is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's one choice for the essence of the Torah. You could look at any sentence in the Torah and make an argument for it being the essence. We made that choice. I like that choice. Is it my top Torah phrase? Actually, no, it's in the top tier. But we look back in American history similarly and like we choose who we put on currency. We put Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill and not Harriet Tubman. That was, you know, an issue a few years ago. Maybe maybe now that we have a new president, that will be an issue once again and we'll see a new person on the $20 bill. Now, is that the most important issue in the world? No. But what it reflects is we as a society have looked back on our history and we have decided to place as a kind of physical monument, like on currency, a person who committed genocide, who engineered a genocide of Native Americans. We've decided to center that person on the $20 bill when we could have chosen any number of other people. And that opens up a set of questions. Like we we should be thinking about how we do memory in both American society and Jewish society. And I don't think the answer is to just valorize everyone and like only pick the, the best people and say, that's the essence of America. Like, it wouldn't be better for us to say, ah, the essence of America is Harriet Tubman, who is awesome. Like, that's, I'm all about Harriet Tubman. 
that we need to be able to hold both sides of that equation. But I mean, like, yes, I, uh, the, the, what you're saying is factually true. And I mean, I think in a way, this is a, a, a running uh, argument that we have, although I think we've, we actually do fundamentally agree about it. What, what I'm trying to figure out, though, is like, let's say that I ha- I'm a person and I've spent, I've misspent my youth, right? I've done a lot of bad things in my youth. I see, I understand myself to be a moral person and a truth teller, right? And somebody says, oh, but when you were a teenager, you you lied a lot, you know? And like, yeah, but that's when I was a teenager, you know? And now... I want to, as an adult, I've decided to, uh, you know, go with the values that my father and mother always told me to tell the truth. And so now from now on, I am a truth teller. Now you can keep hitting me back with my misspent youth about when I was a liar, when I was a teenager, but at some point, you know, I think it's reasonable for me to say, but I've changed. I want to change and I'm going forward in a new way. So in a sense, I'm suggesting that entities that we have some capacity to be idealistic about because there's something in its history that is positive, even as there is something in its history that is negative, that's different from a blank canvas, right? And maybe better, maybe worse. I'm not totally sure. But there's something that I, I find very moving. Like I, I've actually been watching the uh, commercials for Reverend Warnock, who is running for one of the Georgia Senate seats. And he is the uh, pastor in the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Martin Luther King's pulpit. And for good political reasons, he's making a lot of that. But I also think that it's real. That's real. You know, and I and I think that Martin Luther King was somebody who, at least rhetorically, right, tried to call white America to its better angels and to say, you know, these are principles that you white people put in the Constitution. You know, I didn't put them there. And, and so once you put them there, then I'm going to call you to them and to say, hey, you're good. Like, these are your ideals. You're also bad. But we're not going to I'm not going to um, look at you and say, because you did all these bad things, your future is to be bad. I'm going to look at you and say, you had a mixed bag in your past, and now I'm going to call you to the better angels of the things that you yourself said. And and that's what I'm trying to sort of imagine, that both with America and with Judaism, that there ought to be some way to be able to reach back into the past for those positive things. Like when Rabbi Akiva said, love your neighbor as yourself, that's the great principle of the Torah. I agree with you that he was wrong factually, right? Meaning that he was, that he, or at the very least, he was not being fully honest because there that's one of the great principles. And some of the great principles are also like, you know, you should kill all the parasites and the Jebusites and the whatever, you know, and, and that he didn't say that was the greatest principle of the Torah. And he could have, I mean, there was nothing in the Torah that specifically said that love your neighbors yourself is the greatest principle. So, but at the point at which he says, I am now founding a new version of Judaism because the temple was just destroyed. And in our new version of Judaism, the greatest principle that we're going to take from the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. That is now factually becomes true for as long as people follow him. Right. And and I guess like what I'm trying to figure out is what does it look like for America for somebody to say, okay, well, we had this bad time just now. Well, you know, but moving forward, we are going to love each other. We're going to be, you know, Joe Biden says uh, the people that voted for the other side, they're not our enemies. They're Americans. That, that doesn't mean that we we can't condemn what they did. That doesn't mean that we can't continue to fight with them. But they're not our enemies. They're Americans. You know, and that's the reality that he's trying to construct. And I think that the question is, can he do that? Right. And and ultimately, the question when we say that we, we want to have a Judaism that fundamentally means justice, that means that we take the responsibilities that we have to save the earth, it would, that means that every person is created in the image of God and therefore uh, we must be anti-racist in, in our very core, for example, that that is what it will mean going forward. But it's somehow stronger to say, and we actually are building on values that we've had for a long time. I love that you brought up the Jebusites, Hittites thing, you know, these groups that the Israelites are supposed to wipe out on their way into Canaan. I think we get off so easy sometimes as contemporary readers of Torah because of the fact that there are no Jebusites or Hittites or Amorites in our society. They're just like abstractions in our head. 
Let's take a second and imagine there are actually Jebusites and Hittites and Amorites, real humans who live with us today. And they see this text. And it is clear over and over again in this text, both in Torah and then in Joshua, where like the actual thing happens where they go into Canaan. And like it's very clear that these people are not good and that we are supposed to actually wipe them out. If we lived in a society like that and we approached the essence of Torah as love your neighbor as yourself and we didn't proactively, directly upend those other parts and in relationship with those Jebusites and Hittites who would be real people, like actually say to them, like, we messed up. Mm -hmm. uh, Not only did we mess up in the past, we get that we messed up in the past and we're still... For thousands of years, we've been learning these texts and either skirting over those parts that that caused harm to you or like pretending they're good, pretending it's good to treat you like crap and to kill your ancestors. Like if we operated in this happy-go-lucky land of the essences, love your neighbor as yourself, and we didn't confront that, that would be irredeemable. That would be really terrible. What I'm saying is I think that when we approach American society – I yes, yeah, there's ways in which America has grown over time, and where like I like your sort of youthful analogy that like as a kid there are things that America might have done poorly that it improved on. There's other ways that it's been doing the same old stuff for sure. Um, and and I think part of that is that it's because it's actually precisely because we feel the need to defend the origin story of America and the early leaders of America when when we feel that that's the verb we have to do defend we have to we have to defend the legacy of those early people that puts us in a tricky situation both in torah and in america if i felt it was my role to defend the torah which is how some jews conceive of their role i would have to look at that jebusite hittite t- text and i have to like say either the jebusites and hittites must have been terrible they must have done something terrible that would allow for god to command this and if that's my takeaway, by the way, those people are terrible. And if they had descendants, I would uh, relate to them as being terrible. And people today literally do that with descendants of what they deem to be Amalek, you know, one of the the bad figures in Torah. And they deem, you know, certain groups in the world as those descendants. And they're bad because, because you have to defend the original text. My other response might be they weren't bad, but maybe there's a convoluted way in which doing this act of wiping them out, like, taught us something or we're supposed to learn from how it's actually not what we should have done. Like, I can make apologetics for it, but I'd rather just say this was bad. We shouldn't have as a core commandment that's repeated a bunch of times to wipe out a bunch of people. And and I think that looking at American society in that way is helpful because it means people who want to be authentic actors on the American legacy today. You can do that from a bunch of spaces. I think that trying to do it from a predisposition of defense of the past, I think that that's really going to almost always lead to problems. It's going to lead to people defending Confederate flags because, oh, it's just a part of our history. It's not that it's racism. It's just a part of our history that happened value neutrally. That's what people try to say. Um, It's going to lead to people defending the Andrew Jacksons of the world who committed genocide because he was elected president. I, I hear you and I want us to think about what the what the progress really has been. But I think the lens of Teshuvah, actually, the lens of Jewish atonement repair is helpful here because Mm -hmm. what somebody looking at those texts would say to you in response to the thing about how somebody's grown from their youth is, sure, you've grown from your youth, but if you were doing, if you had a certain behavior of your youth that was a pattern and that was really harming people, you need to own that you've done that. You need to be in touch with the people who you caused harm to, and you need to prove that in a similar situation today, you won't act the same way. Yeah. So it's many steps. And that's what I hope we take on. What I'm trying to look for is the enduring value of idealism, right? I'm, I'm trying to hold on to some notion that many Jews have a experience of ourselves as being in a part of a community of meaning. And what I'm looking for is to retain the idealism that says, I am part of a community of meaning. I want to continue to be part of a community of meaning. And some of how, not all, some of how I get the meaning of the community that I'm part of is 
through the maintenance of ideals that are old, that are ancient, that are traditional, whatever language you want to put on it, people actually write again back to thinking back to Ari Kelman and the, the survey work that he did about how people like the idea of tradition. They like the idea that they're carrying something forward. And and yet, how do we also look in the rearview mirror and see all the horrible things? And I, I agree with you about teshuva, about repentance. That's why I, I've advocated that we should continue to read the, the line on Yom Kippur about you know, the anti-homosexuality line from the Torah, as well as all the other horrible lines from the Torah. I, I think that should be a practice for Yom Kippur, that we read all the terrible stuff and atone for it. And that that actually sort of helps us move forward. You know, I've talked about other psychological elements that you, you can't move forward until you've grieved for something that you've lost. And you can't move forward with idealism until you've repented for what you've done that was harmful. Or, and by the way, this is where I think there's another connection, or what you haven't done, but you've tolerated. And so I think that actually helps us think a little bit about the, the next phase uh, in America. And, and, uh, and, and to me, it's a question of how Judaism, also how Christianity, how any religion, how any other tradition, let's say, other than American, the American tradition, such as it is, how it might come into play with the next Era, Because I will say that I've been disappointed by Judaism and by Christianity and by many other organizations that might have claimed to have these strong moral traditions. I don't want to name them, but, you know, various civic organizations, let's say, that have uh, not, I, I think that have fallen down on the job um, in many respects, and, and by the way, I agree with you, like a lot of Jewish organizations have done amazingly well during this period, but others have fallen down, and certainly a lot of Christian organizations have fallen down, and other organizations have fallen down, on being able to say, look, it may be that Trump is offering me something that I really want, right? So I'll look away. You put the Israeli capital in Jerusalem, you know, you acknowledge the Israeli capital in Jerusalem. I am going to look away as you oppress Mexicans at the border. You know, anybody who says like I'm going to look away as you turn down the 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 anti anti-Semitism flame, you know, and and end up having more anti-Semitism, and I'm willing to accept more Jews being killed in America in order to have the capital in Jerusalem. Okay, well at least there you're you're willing to put yourself on the line there, you know. But in most cases, it seems that the values are actually coming at the expense of someone else. And fundamentally, the, 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 thing, the critique that I have of religion coming from this experience is that if your God only asks you to do the things that you would have done anyway, basically, then what good is it? Like, what is it doing? And, and so if there are not cases where I say the thing that I want the most you know, anti-abortion judges or the Israeli capital being recognized in Jerusalem or whatever it might be that you want the most, you willingly and happily or sadly give up because you are not willing to make a compromise that means putting somebody into a position of power who is going to then use that power to harm others. Then if, if you are willing to give that thing up, then you have a religion that I admire. You know, then you have a a system of values that I admire and think is worth anything. But if you're not willing to do that, and it seems that a, a lot of folks that are religious have gone along with, you know, the most irreligious, most devoid of values person that we could imagine in our time in order to get those goodies. And, and that to me is a, is a complete perversion of, of religion complete. So now my question is this, let's say that those folks, they have to do some, some repentance, some tshuva, and hopefully something will happen. They will, we could talk about that later. But we're, right now I wanna turn the attention to the other religious folks, the Jews that have not fallen down on the job, the Christians that have not fallen down on the job and ask, you know, what could we do now to kind of rise to this occasion? Like, what would it look like to look at the work of healing? And I say this very guardedly, because I understand, I'm not trying to say that we should give up on everything that we've been striving for, absolutely not. But I'm saying like, there, it feels to me that for, for Judaism to be valuable, for Christianity to be valuable, there has to be a moment in, in victory, in electoral victory to say, and now we are not going to look upon those who uh, have done wrong to us and to others 
we're not necessarily going to treat them the way that they treated us. There's some, there's some healing of society that we have to be engaged in while at the same time not giving up on the values that, that we've been working so hard to, to get here to enact. I'll start by saying my inclination about like strategy and how to approach those people is a little different from yours, but I, I also share your desire to not, to not see anybody as like automatically an eternal enemy. I, I think it's a little complicated, but I'll get to that. I, I want to, I do want to reflect on some of the memory questions as well, because like when I think, and you talk about Christianity beautifully, and I think that there's something that happens in Christian discourse and even sort of Christian politics, including Christian politics I like. There's a, there's a lot of great progressive Christian denominations that actually are very much aligned with what I would like the world to look like. And there's others that clearly aren't, and those others tend to have more power. But um, I remember, I, it's a depressing thing to say, but um, we live in a country where you can get mass shootings confused. And I don't remember mm. which mass shooting this happened after. But after one of the mass shootings, there was a, a shooter who had been motivated in ways that were drawing from Christian texts and teachings. And I read an article and there were all these ministers, priests, pastors, et cetera, saying, you know, this guy is a perversion of Christianity. This guy does not represent us. That doesn't make me feel good. That doesn't make me feel like there's something serious happening where you're looking at how somebody could mobilize Christianity for this purpose. I read one article, and I'll try to find it for the show notes. Hopefully, I'll find it. Um, there was one article where a pastor said, actually, you know, this guy wrote I forget, he might have wrote like a manifesto. He rewrote something online where he was talking about Christian texts and he got a lot of stuff right. He actually was correct in how he was citing some of these texts and then he went and killed a bunch of people. That worries me. That's the pastor I'm interested in learning from. The other ones I'm not all that interested in learning from. Maybe, I mean, maybe they have other, I don't want to write them off completely, mm -hmm, but like mm -hmm. I, I want somebody who's going to say, oh, there actually is something in my tradition that can lead people astray. And now I'm going to turn to Judaism because we do the same thing. Yep. We look at Orthodox people voting for Trump and we say, that's not Judaism. Yep. But it is Judaism. They're, they're, like, they're, they're citing real things that exist in Jewish texts. They're not the texts that I like the most. They're not the ones that have been centered in my you know, religious school and summer camp and et cetera experiences, but they're real. And if we look around and pat ourselves on the back because, you know, we were, depending on the poll, you know, either 68% or 77% or somewhere in between for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, like, first off, that's between 23 and 32% of Jews who did not vote in that direction. So that's automatically a big enough group that I really want to look inward at what's happening there. And a part of the necessary process in order to actually learn anything and to actually commit to the teshuva work that you and I both want to do is to say there are non-trivial actual ways that people can learn from texts that will do terrible things to the world. It requires that undefensive posture. It, it requires us being able to say that and not, oh, you know, these texts are mostly good and then people warp them sometimes. They they pervert them sometimes. no. There are straightforward things, and if we, we we should taxonomize them, we should categorize them, we should literally think about in Jewish tradition what are the actual ways that people can look at text and be led to believe and do terrible things. I'll start one chosenness. That is a conception that is not automatically evil. I'm not going to say any conception of Jewish chosenness is like a terrible thing for the world. I do think there are a lot of conceptions of Jewish chosenness that are terrible for the world, and they're not that ridiculous. Like you can come to them pretty simply based on liturgical texts that we pray from, based on Torah texts that we read. It doesn't require somebody to be like dumb or to be evil to come to those conclusions. So we, when we're teaching those texts, need to say, hey, you might think this means that Jews are better than everyone. We are going to stand up and say that's not what this means. And if it, and if we're going to be like some com religious communities, which candidly I'm a part of, we might come to a place where we reject chosenness from a Jewish place, from other Jewish values, from other Jewish texts. Um, that's what I think we need to do. And it's important four years ago to do that work in America. It's important now to do that. It's important always to do that. But 
I learned from those moments when I look at Christians and they're talking about Christianity. And every time a Christian talks about like the essence of Christianity is only to be good, to be charitable, to be righteous, to stand up for faith. And of course, in many of these situations to also for them believe in Jesus as a, a salvational figure. Great. Like if if that's the only thing you see as the essence of Christian history and Christianity and you're not regularly approaching the ways that Christianity as Christianity has been mobilized to hurt people, you got to have that in play. And so I don't look at that and say, oh, the Christians have that unique responsibility because they're the biggest group and they're the one with the most power. We also have that responsibility as Jews, as Americans, as anything. So I know that we want to talk about some other things, especially relating to Kamala Harris and Doug Emhoff, but I, I just want to close this by asking you a little bit, but like the Judaism that you aspire toward or the America that that you aspire toward, that we aspire toward, like how would it respond to the moment that we're in in America right now where we have you know, flirted, I think, very closely with the, I believe, with the end of American democracy, with authoritarianism, and kind of escaped it, and yet only really by by a hair. And I'm trying to sort of figure out both how a Jewish tradition and also like, you know, an, an idealistic future, like you say, future America that I aspire toward, you know, how would it respond to the fact that half of our fellow Americans either didn't see the stakes the way that I saw the stakes, and then all they did was, you know, vote for some really bad policies and terrible ways to treat other people that I hate, but at least that they weren't, you know, actually voting for the end of American democracy, or they did vote for that, or they they were willing to um, look the other way on something like that, or you know, and and different people have different levels of you know active intentional hatred of other people that I think are motivating them, ranging from you know I'm a terrible racist, I hate everybody from a different race, to you know towards the other end of the spectrum, you know. I, I love everybody, but I'm willing to look the other way. You know, I don't know. There's like a whole range. And the fact is, is that we're talking about millions, you know, 70 million voters. We're probably talking about 100 million people. And they fall along this whole range. And the question is like, what are we supposed to do about it? All of us want these folks to repent. Like we all want them to kind of get it and actively say I was wrong and repent, but like that's not going to happen. Yeah. So I do think there are a few concrete Jewish things from text, teachings, whatever, that that are worth mobilizing right now in American society for good. I'm thinking about a really almost always ignored section of the Mishnah that it's like it's like a joke in some yeshiva settings. I mentioned to somebody once that I liked this text. It's called Horayot. And th- they responded like, nobody reads that one. Like this was like an Orthodox Jew who spent a lot of time in yeshiva settings and knew like lots of texts. Like what, are you, like, what are you doing with that one? This is an entire text. It's very specific. It is about when a rule has been made in a community that actually in retrospect, you realize was wrong. Like you're supposed to be doing, you're supposed to be following God's commandments in X, Y, or Z way. And the the leader of the community thought that you were doing it one way, but in actuality, it was a different way. So everybody in the community was doing the wrong thing for like however many years. And the question is then, what do you do when you realize this? Your entire town has gone astray because you've been operating under like bad policy, basically, which from my perspective, that's like very much the America we're living in. And it says the entire town collectively needs to basically atone. Every person in that town brings like their own individual offering when they realize this mistake has collectively been made. There's also unique responsibilities for the leader who messed up, um, which also makes sense. But like, I think that's important. Like, even those of us who did vote for Biden, even those of us who are not the people that like, in my view, need to really think about what their actions have mobilized, perpetuated, caused harm over the past few years. We've also done that. 
if look, I'm a I'm a white man who has had plenty of moments in my life where I am not fully conscious of that position that I'm in, where I've perpetuated all sorts of systems of oppression. Like, and I'm not saying that to like self-flagellate. All of us are part of a society. All of us fall short. And so what I'd say in terms of like getting people who voted for Trump to like look inward and try to fashion the world you're talking about, like, let's just all do it. Let's not say like they have this specific responsibility. We also have that responsibility. Do I think they've caused more material harm with their vote than others? Yes, I do think that. But practically, I'm not sure that makes so much of a difference. We should all be thinking about how in the past four years we may have done or said or et cetera things that have contributed to a worse world. The only other thing I'd bring up is from Jewish text, et cetera, I think a collective ethos is required right now. And I'm actually optimistic that the trend line in America is that people are thinking collectively, that people aren't just thinking about, ah, I'm a person on my own who, you know, if I do whatever, if I behave nicely to my neighbors, if I give charitable donations, if I do X, Y, or Z things, if I don't litter, like, then I'm sort of good. As, a, as an American and I've done like my civic duty or whatever. I actually think the trend line, it's not that everybody's getting there, but I think the trend line is away from that to a sense that we're part of systems, we're part of collectives. And I think Judaism has a lot to teach us about that. I do think the idea of needing to be in community with others in order to achieve goals as opposed to an ethos that implies it's on each individual to sort of connect to God or not, connect to the world or not, do the right thing or not. Like, I can do all the right things in my day-to-day life all I want. That doesn't mean that I am maxing out my potential to contribute to society. It's a collective. And what that means is where I live, which right now it's in Providence, Rhode Island, I have the ability to be in coalitions in that space. It means in my religious community, Jews, across geography, because of the internet, everything else, I have the potential to use that intersection and be in a community that mobilizes certain things. It means that in all my other communities, I can be looking to be part of those collectives and working with our, with all of our hands on deck, to use Danya Ruttenberg and Sheila Katz's language, and not, you know, each of us... I don't know, pushing a different part of deck. That doesn't work as a metaphor. But like, it's more effective when all of us are doing it together. So I think that the collective notions that are present in Judaism, uh, much as they're not the only notions, they can be really important for us in a moment that calls for groups to band together and do things and not just each person to sort of think about where they could be better. I think like going back to what you were saying about the things that I want to be idealistic about, you know, that I want to find idealism in America, Judaism, that the truth is that they are a mixed bag and they have good and bad. What I think we probably are a little bit stronger than you, but I think what we both ima- you know, imagine the future looks like is to go back to those wells and pull forward the things that inspire us and atone for the things that shame us. And and move ahead and build the Judaism, build the America that we want to have moving forward without getting too hung up on what it has been in the past. And um, at the end of the day, I'm going to be guided by people who are from marginalized communities, you know, people who have not been empowered before women. I mean, I, I feel like as a white man, at the end of the day, like, I don't think that 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 means that I can't express an opinion and I am expressing an opinion and a hope and a dream. But at the end of the day, like if, if the people who are really being harmed in our society don't agree with me, like I'm going to support them. And I feel like, like, I do feel like that Judaism has some degree of, of wisdom from a history of oppression. And I also believe that other peoples have wisdom that comes from a history of oppression, and and I'm going to be watching for their guidance. Totally. We are very much on the same page there in following the voices of those who are most marginalized in our society and in Judaism, by the way. Um, Maybe that's one lens on a thesis statement of our entire podcast is to look for leadership from those who have specifically been placed outside of the realms of leadership, both in Jewish spaces and in America. Okay, so that's a really important takeaway, and I thank you for that, Dan. Um, Throwing it back to you, um, this hasn't been a totally linear episode. We've gone in different directions, meandered here, meandered there. What's our last meander? What's the last angle for us to go to before we totally wrap up this episode? 
there is one thing that that it's getting recognized, but a little bit is under this under the the surface of some of this stuff. But um, we have the first woman and the first person of color to be a vice president, and and uh, in the history of America. And one thing I, I think we've mentioned it publicly on the show, but I don't remember exactly. But we had originally intended to do this series on Judaism and women and feminism that we just concluded recently. We had originally intended to do that in January of 2017 to coincide with the first woman president that we expected was was going to happen when we were doing our schedule in in the fall of, of 2016. And um, and that didn't happen. And it felt like that we had a we had to talk more about some of the moral questions that were going to be at stake in a Trump presidency and that's what we did in January of 2017 and and then we we sort of got back to that really important subject and just before that we had done a series on Jews of color and on Judaism and race and so somehow the the idea that now on the other end of that sort of bookending that we now have the first female vice president is very momentous. And that too is going to be something that will have an impact on the future that's in front of us. I I loved what Kamala Harris said in her speech when she became the vice president-elect, where she said, I'm the first woman to be a vice president, but I will not be the last because now little girls will see me here. I'm, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing. The little girls will see me here and they'll say, I can be vice president. And I think that's something for America. I think that's something for the world. And and to the extent that we see some of those things in Judaism, I, I can't remember if I've told this story before, but there was a synagogue that I was a member of and it had a woman rabbi and she left. And then uh, a male rabbi came, you know, as the next rabbi of that synagogue. And there was a little girl who said to her mother, I didn't know a man could be a rabbi. Yeah, it's it is a momentous thing. Joy is good. I feel that joy. Um I also want to name some things specifically that have not been named specifically. Kamala Harris is the first person of Hindu descent who is in any position like this, vice president or president. Um we seem to not be saying that so much because we're talking about person of color, which we also need to talk about, but I don't know how whether she sees herself as practicing Hinduism, but this is a person who has a Sanskrit name. Kamala means lotus in Sanskrit. I saw an article that people in the town that her grandparents are from in India were just rejoicing in the streets and had like posters of her. Like this matters to people who can look at Kamala Harris and say, even though, and maybe especially because she's not only Hindu, but um, people who can look and say that can happen. So there was another article I read that said, you know, hey, look, um, this often comes through when you're talking about young kids and what they see. Like there was a mother who said to her daughter, like, look, she looks like us. That matters. It's not the only thing that matters. Representation isn't everything, but it, it is something. Um, so that's worth naming. And it's the first tri-faith household to touch the White House or where do they live, the observatory down the road, wherever the vice presidential family lives. But like there's a three-faith household with a, a, a household that has a relationship to Judaism, to Hinduism, and Christianity that is, you know, second in power in the country. That's a, a huge signal to and, – and, and nobody's talking about it that much, which maybe that's the story. That's actually common enough that that's not such a huge deal to be talking about. We're talking about other things that are important about this representation. So all of this is worth having joy. Um that's a good note to end on. Thank you all for listening to this one. I know this is two consecutive Dan and Lex episodes. We're going to be moving away from just our voices. Don't you fear? Um, hopefully you've liked these anyway. But um, we'll be on to a unit of episodes where we're continuing conversations about Jewish philanthropy. Um, and just as a reminder on that philanthropic front to what Dan said on the top of the episode is that we've got our Hanukkah fundraiser coming up, our Geltraiser, geltraiser.com. And uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be eight nights of experiments and uh, maybe some ridiculousness and learning. Head to geltraiser.com. You can participate with that $36 gift. And we'll see you in December. So thank you so much for listening. We love when you're in touch with us. There's our email addresses, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. And then all of our social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., Thank you so much for your support, whether this is your first episode or your 248th. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.